If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 68, it's where we took the call to worship from, but this is also our Old Testament scripture reading. And I'm going to read for us the whole psalm. So this is Psalm 68, beginning in verse 1. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain, before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings... There let, it fall, snow, let so, snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands, The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, The power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute, 
Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. We're meditating today on the ascension of Christ. And Psalm 68 is a a hymn, a psalm of ascension. Verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. This is all about the ascension of a king. And the Apostle Paul quotes this psalm. He quotes that verse to speak about the ascension of Christ. To say that this is true in, in the church age. That Christ the King has ascended on high. That he has taken captives, that's us, with him. And he has now bestowed gifts by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit upon his people. And very often, I think, in Reformed evangelicalism today, and I think this can be true of us here at times, we emphasize the the doctrine of sin, the reality of sin. We speak a lot about the sinfulness of mankind, our own sinfulness. And then we focus on the atoning work of Christ, his crucifixion for the forgiveness of sins. And that is good and right, right? These are true and good things. But we may face a danger in thinking and dwelling upon this aspect of Christ's work to the exclusion of the rest. And we don't want to do that. Sometimes we can focus so much on the the need we have as sinful human beings to be atoned for by the work of Christ that we neglect to think about the ascension of Christ. Where is Christ now that his work on the cross is finished? We don't want to obscure that in any way. Because if we obscure that, what happens is we take on what I sometimes think of and talk about as a kind of Eeyore theology. You know Eeyore, right? The character from Winnie the Pooh. There's always a cloud over him. Everything's always sad and downcast, right? And so we're constantly feeling bad about where we're at, that nothing ever changes. That coming to church then becomes this place where what we really come to do is gain some kind of, you know, cathartic experience of of self-flagellation, reminding us of our guilt. And we're, in doing so, we're often just focused on us. This is not to deny guilt. It's not to deny our sinfulness, the reality of our need for forgiveness. But when we obscure the ascension of Christ by focusing on this so much that we don't think about what Christ has done in his ascension, it just, it creates an imbalance in our lives. The attitude of a Christian, your attitude, should not primarily be one of that kind of self-flagellation, constantly focused on yourself, constantly focused on your sin. The primary, the central attitude of a Christian that we read about in Scripture is one of confident and bold joy in the work of the Lord. 
And that's what this psalm is all about. I hope you heard that as we read it. It is a triumphal procession of the conquering king. His enemies have been scattered and they're being defeated. But what does it say for the righteous? Right? For you who are in Christ, who are righteous in Christ, what does it say? It says that the righteous shall be glad. Right? That's you. Be ye glad, it says. Sing praises, it says. Exult before him. Right? The God who is now champion in the world is a father to the fatherless. And he gives a home to those who don't have one. It's only the rebellious, it says, who don't benefit. The chariots of God, it speaks of. The, the heavenly host, his army, is ten thousands. It's twice ten thousand, it says. It's, it's thousands upon thousands. He has ascended far to a place that is far greater, far higher than any earthly power. Because he ascended, we're told in Scripture that he both is standing and sitting. Right? Metaphorical language, because he's doing both of these things. Because he is standing as an intercessor for you who are in Christ. Right? He stands interceding on your behalf, ever pouring out his Holy Spirit upon you for power, for holiness. And he is seated on a throne. Seated as judge of all the earth. Seated as in the, the work is finished. Right? He is king. It's not that he's going to become a king. It's not that he's going to gain power and authority. It's that he says, already I have all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And so he sits, drawing all nations and peoples to himself. And so, yes, life will be full of suffering. Right? Your life will be full of something. This is not to say that there is not pain and sorrow and suffering in the Christian life. That will be there. Right? You will suffer. If you are to follow Christ, he says you must take up your cross daily and follow him. You must die. You must suffer as he did. That will come. Yes, sin is still present. Right? You will fall short of the calling of God on your life. However, you are still a part of his royal procession. And you, can't, you cannot be Eeyore in the king's parade. Right? You, you can't bring a cloud to that procession. No, you are a part of his procession. Imagine that, right? A king marching up a mountain to his palace, to his throne, right? And, and you have been invited to come and take part in this, this grand event, right? To go before him singing and exalting, to come after him saying what he is worthy of, what he deserves, speaking of his glory and his honor, right? This is a king who is good, who is righteous, who has liberated you, right? Who, who, who has, has freed you from the domain of darkness. How, how would you act in that situation? Right? You'd be jubilant. You'd be joyful. Because of him you are liberated and you've been given gifts. You are wealthy beyond all measure. Everything you've needed has been provided. And so you would, you would sing and you would ascribe to him glory and honor and praise. You wouldn't be focusing on yourself, in other words. Right? Whether good or bad, 
it's about him, right? It's about the king now. This is his procession. Well, that's what we're doing here. That's what our lives are supposed to be for. All of the kingdoms of the earth will come before him, will present gifts to him, will pay their allegiance to him, right? It's as certain as his throne. And so, let me read once again what I've already read now twice. We're going to get it a third time because it's that important. Again, here are these last few words of this psalm. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. God is speaking. And it is through his word that he will accomplish everything that he means to accomplish. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. Right, from his temple, his sanctuary, in Christ. Christ who is the new Zion. He is the mountain of the Lord. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. That's you. He gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Our New Testament reading and sermon text comes from Colossians chapter 3. We'll be reading Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. Hear then the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. So as we've been working through this series on the foundations of the faith, we come now to the, the reality of Christ's ascension, that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And the ascension of Christ is central to the message of the gospel. And I think it's true what I said before, that we, we don't always think about it that way. We don't always think about this aspect of Christ's work as much as we really should. And there's different reasons for why that might be. It doesn't really matter, though. We should just seek to correct it. Right? We want the ascension to figure prominently in our understanding of what Christ has done. Why? Why does, why does that matter? Well, because it is, in fact, what he did. He did ascend on high, and because this is where Christ is right now. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. So we should not think of our Lord as still on the cross or risen from the dead, but still on earth. No, he has ascended on high, been given a name higher and greater than any other. That's why this should figure prominently for us. Our God is in the heavens, which means he does whatever he pleases. It's the ascension, then, that can give us the confident hope that we need as believers to live in a fallen world and to grow in holiness. It's the ascension that gives us the direction for our lives. What are you to seek? 
as a believer, what are you to seek? What are you to set your mind upon? It's not the things that are behind you. It's not the things that are ahead of you. It's not the things that are below. You are to set your mind and to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. So as we look at this text, let me give you just a very brief background as we've not been in the book of Colossians. In context, Paul has just explained that there's no value in a merely outward uh, kind of asceticism or religious practice. Asceticism is, is a kind of denying of yourself in extreme ways, thinking that it will, it will change your heart, it will change your desires. And he said that this has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So pure ritualism, right, just outward obedience, right, just doing the things that you know you're supposed to do, but purely at, on an outward level, without any change of the heart, this is of no value. Paul's been especially speaking of the kind of ritualism that developed around the Old Testament ceremonial system, right, the ceremonial law that Israel was given by God, that they were to obey, and yet many had taken it and it had become a purely outward form of following God. But there was no heart change. There was no, it never seeped in deeper than that. It was all outward. It was all fleshly. This is why, by the way, even in the Old Testament, even with the giving of the law, Moses himself would say, it's not enough to just be outwardly circumcised, you have to have the, your heart circumcised. You need the circumcision of the heart, he said. This is why, why God himself, though, though God commanded the sacrificial system, yet he tells Israel at times, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want this from you. Why? Because it had become purely an outward act, and it never penetrated the heart. God wants the heart. He wants all of you. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop by merely condemning a, a completely outward form of religiosity that doesn't actually change anything, that has no value. And he doesn't say there is no way to be changed. There's no way for your heart to be changed, for your desires to be changed. No, there is something, he says, that can actually change your life. And it happens to be related to the fact that Christ has ascended. It is the, the fact of Christ's ascension. Let me read the text again. It's nice sometimes when we have these shorter texts because we can read the whole thing all at once and, and get it all several times while we're working through it. If then, he says, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We've talked a lot lately about the idea of union with Christ. And this passage speaks to this. Right? He says, if you have been raised, he says, you have died. And you might ask, when did this happen? Right? When, was I, when did I die? When, when was I raised? Well, because you are united to Christ by faith, that is, you have been made one with him, it means that you died in him and were raised in him. 
Where he is, you are. Where he goes, you go. It means that Jesus Christ is the defining feature of your life, not you anymore. His works, not your works. His life, not your life. His spirit, not your spirit. You've been made a part of him, and so you receive what his actions have produced. And spiritually speaking, if you have believed, then you've already died. Not physically, but in spirit. You've died to the world and the flesh. You've died to yourself. You are not your own. Your your life has been laid down so that Jesus Christ might live through you. All of your life is not about you anymore. It's not focused on you. It It is for him. It's that he might make himself known through you. This also means that you have been raised in him. Meaning that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then you rose from the dead as well. That you are now alive in spirit by his spirit. You are a new creation in Christ and have a spiritual life that transcends this world. Death no longer has a hold over you. Not that it once did. And sin no longer has the power in your life that it once did. You are a new man or new woman as you've been given new life. This is what this idea means. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that that you aren't yourself, that no, you are yourself still. You're just more yourself. You're, you're what you're supposed to be because you are in Christ. And Paul makes this idea the clearest when he says your life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus Christ holds your life. And being that he is the eternal son of God, it means that your life has been brought into fellowship with God. Your life is so closely tied and aligned to that of Jesus Christ that Paul can then say, when Christ, who is your life, and you notice that there's both, you you have your own life, but also Christ is your life at the same time. Your life is now synonymous with Christ. Your life is his. He is working through it. His life is yours, giving you access to know and love and be loved by the eternal God. And when Jesus returns, when he comes back, you will appear with him in glory. You will receive a portion in the glorious kingdom of heaven. You will be glorified as he glorifies himself through you. If then, if all of that is true, if then you have died and been raised and your life is hidden and he is your life, If then you have that kind of union, if you have truly believed and been united, you then have the direction for the rest of your life. It doesn't stop there. You have the direction set for the rest of your life. And you have the power that is necessary to live the kind of life that you are directed to. To live a transformed and redeemed life. Because where is Jesus Christ now? Where is the one who you are hidden in, who you are with? He has ascended to a place of authority and power at the right hand of God. He is seated on a throne. Paul is saying if you have died and been raised, then you must now ascend. Right? This, 
your life, it, it follows the trajectory of Jesus' life. You died with him, you've been raised with him, now you must ascend with him as well. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. This is the progression of your life, where you follow Jesus wherever he goes. You followed him into the grave, you followed him out of the grave, you must now follow him into the heavens. And that might sound strange, right, just saying it like that. Um, That might sound a little strange to you. And I don't mean some kind of, you know, weird, uh, mystical, kind of Eastern meditation where you, you kind of deny yourself and you pretend like you don't exist and you just become a part of something else where you no longer are. That's not what we're talking about. No, what, what does Paul say? How do you begin to ascend to where Christ is seated right now? By seeking and setting your mind upon him. By seeking and setting your mind upon the things that are above where he is. It doesn't say to set your mind on things that are behind you. That's what a lot of us do. Right? You say you want to follow Christ and serve God right? and know the transformation possible in him. And then you set your mind on the past. You meditate on how bad you've been, the shameful things that you've done. You think about those things. This is kind of what I was talking about before, this this Eeyore mentality. You're still focused on you, right? It's not thinking good things about yourself. It's not thinking too highly of yourself, maybe, but you're still focused inward in some way. You act as though spiritual growth comes from thinking poorly of yourself. It's really no different than many of the kinds of ascetic practices that Paul was writing about before this. Right? If you make yourself feel really bad in some way, then you'll do the right thing. Right? Then your heart will change. If, if you'll just guilt yourself hard enough, right? if you just deprecate yourself more, then you'll finally be a better Christian. Then God will be pleased with you. Or maybe... if you're looking behind, you're setting your mind on things that are behind, you're meditating on things that have been done to you, right? You're dwelling on the sins of other people, perceived or real, right? This is, it's more of a victim mentality. You justify yourself on the matter of how hard things have been for you, right? And your redemption is found in the, the bitterness that you have for others, what they've done to you, the actually bad people outside of me, the really sinful people, as long as I'm better than them. It doesn't say, though, to set your mind on things that are behind, right? There's no value in that. It doesn't do anything for you. That doesn't mean you pretend like everything's great, right? This isn't pretending. This isn't make-believe, right? It doesn't mean that you have not sinned in grievous ways. It doesn't mean that people have not sinned against you in grievous ways. It means that those things do not take central stage in your mind. There's no power for change in simply feeling bad about the past. 
nor does it say to set your mind on things that are ahead. Right? Trying to, in a sense, live in the future. Trying to manifest, in a sense, what you want to be true. There's no benefit in obsessing over what you want your life to look like in 10, 20, or 40 years. There's no value in trying to run from the future or trying to hide from what might change. Right? Or, or how often has it helped to be anxious about what's going to happen tomorrow or a week from now or 10 years from now? How often has that really helped you? How often has that really changed your life? No, it doesn't say to set your mind on the things that are ahead. Nor does it say to set your mind on the things that are below. In fact, it explicitly says not to set your mind on the things that are of earth, earthly things. And earthly doesn't mean physical, but Paul will go on to define what he means by earthly things. This is verse 5 to 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is it? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Right? No, he says, put to death those earthly things. This is not what will help you. Sexual immorality, if only I could indulge in these desires, then I would finally find contentment or joy. There's, there's finally something out there that will fill me. Idolatry, right? we set up for ourselves objects of affection. Things that we're willing to sacrifice everyone else to and everything else for. You give in to your anger toward others because you think when you're angry that you're righteous. Right? You have the right to be angry. These are always the times that we like to say, well, the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to be angry. Right? I just can't sin in my anger. You lie to yourself and to others. You try to create an image of yourself that you want to be true, but simply isn't. And it doesn't actually work. Right? You build up a kind of virtual reality around you, but, but it doesn't actually change anything. It all falls apart in the end. What I'm trying to communicate is that we often try to use these earthly means, right? base desires and affections, worldly means, to accomplish spiritual ends. Right? We want to be better, we want to live better lives, we want to be transformed. We know that something's wrong, something's not quite right, we're not content. But how does change happen? How does true spiritual change happen in your life? Paul does not say it can't happen. Part of his point in this section of Colossians is that actually it can. Your heart can be transformed, your desires can be transformed. That can happen. But how? It doesn't happen by earthly means. True spiritual power. Remember reading in Psalm 68, what does God give? Right? Power and strength to his people. Power is the, the ability to accomplish something. Right? True 
spiritual power, life-changing power can be had in your life, but only as you do what Paul says, to seek the things that are above and to set your minds on the things that are above, which is to say on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has ascended. You're being called in these words to transcend earthly things by ascending to where Christ already is. You've died in him, dying to the old man in this world. You've been raised with him to newness of life as a new creation. So now, since he has gone into the heavenly places, since he has poured out his Holy Spirit that now dwells within you, now you are to seek heavenly things. You are not of this world anymore. You're not to live of it. And you can actually do that because Jesus Christ has ascended on high. Right? Because he has poured out his Holy Spirit. Right? What does that mean? What, is, what does it mean that he has done this? What does his ascension really mean? Well, it means that if you are a Christian, then Jesus Christ is in heaven interceding on your behalf. So you don't have to be concerned about your position before God. You don't have to be concerned about whether or not your relationship with God might be in jeopardy if you are in Christ. No, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It is secure. So that gives you a confidence in the love of the Heavenly Father. Christ's ascension means that he is enthroned. So he already is ruling and reigning in this world. He already has all power and authority. And it's on that basis that we then confidently proclaim his saving work. And it's on that basis that we confidently read his promises. We read what he would have us do in our lives. And then we seek it. Right? We actively pursue godliness and virtue. It's because of that enthronement that we know that no weapons formed against us will prosper. That Jesus Christ will have that for which he died. That he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. We believe it. We seek it. We know it to be true. It means that the power of the Holy Spirit of God is at work in you. Right? So you can be confident in his sanctifying work. It also means that he has given gifts to men. We read about that earlier. Right? He's given gifts to you, his people. He has equipped you for ministry and for this life. We just, we've been doing a new members class. We just started this morning before the service. And we talked about the fact that all scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. And so it is sufficient that the man of God may be completely equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? We have that confidence knowing that he has equipped us for everything that he's called us to. So are you following this? Your role as a Christian then is not to constantly just feel bad about yourself. It's not to feel bad about the world, to look out at the world and say, what a mess. Right? None of this is how it should be. Look at all the bad things happening in the world. And then you just mope around till you die right look how bad things are out there look how bad things are for me and that's it where you just stay there you just complain and it's over 
No, you, you have a part to play in the processional parade of Jesus Christ. You are to go before him singing and rejoicing and follow him with confident expectation. So to seek the things that are above, heavenly things, that is to actively build virtuous habits. You can live in a way that pleases God, but it's not by earthly means. It's not the way that the world tells you to live. Right? You must look to Jesus Christ, who is both the author and the perfecter of your faith. He is both. He is all of them. God has given us his word to teach us how to think. We are to set our minds on the things that are above. How are we supposed to think about our lives and the world and the things happening around us and history and philosophy? and What are we supposed to think? Well, he's given this to us. He's shown us. He's directed us. You're meant to pattern your life upon what he has revealed. And I think the concern we sometimes have when we talk this way is that we have a sense of our own failure. We have a sense that we're not going to do that perfectly. And maybe not. I mean, maybe not on your own. That's true, right? The scripture's clear about that. But when you sin, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the one who has died. So maybe you don't, maybe you can't do these things. Maybe you cannot live a transformed life in and of yourself. Maybe you know that. But don't you know that Jesus Christ has ascended on high? Don't you realize that he has given the Holy Spirit of God? Don't you realize that your position is secure? Because his position is secure. There is no relationship that he cannot reconcile. There is no person that is outside of his power to redeem. There's no sin that he cannot put to death in your life. There is no end to the love that he has for those who are his children. You think about a child who grows up in a home where he's doubting and questioning all the time the love of his father. Whether it be because his father's not present, whether it be because his father is abusive or simply just not involved at all. And what happens to a child that grows up in that kind of situation? They become incredibly insecure in everything, right? Not just, not just that, but they become incredibly insecure and incredibly self-focused, right? They feel that they have to really watch out for themselves, take care of themselves. But that's not the family that you've been brought into in Christ. It's not like your mind on Christ. He has ascended. And if all power in heaven and on earth is his, meditate on that. What does that mean? Nothing's outside of his control. Set your mind on that. Don't, don't make excuses right, to wallow in weak faith or shameful deeds or a life that doesn't reflect the supremacy of Christ. No, be bold in faith and be confident in joy. Even if this world is falling apart, even if God is shaking it all to pieces, we know that he has a kingdom and we've been brought into a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot fall apart, one that will remain and endure. 
Seek the things, it says, that are above where he is seated. Live in such a way that when you take the final step into heaven through death, it's not a shock when you get there. Right? Do as, as John says in 1 John, to, to purify yourself as he is pure. To be ready so that when Christ Jesus returns, you don't shrink back. Because you realize that you have not been living in accordance with his righteousness and his holiness. No, you want to live now in a way, by the power of his spirit, according to his grace, in such a way that when he returns, you are singing. Right? You're rejoicing. You're ready, in other words. That's where you've been heading all along. It's not jarring. It's not shocking to take that last step into the presence of God because it's where you've been living the whole time. So the ascension of Christ gives us our heading. Right? Jesus Christ on his throne is our north star, our true north. That's where all of your life is heading. That's where all of the power in this life comes from. So may our lives reflect then the power, the strength, the glory of the one in whom we live, move, and have our being. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. Help us, Father, to know the love of God that surpasses all knowledge and help us then to live with the confident joy and bold hope and a bold faith knowing where Christ is, where our Lord is. Help us to take our part in this processional singing his praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.